Welcome to Troubadours on Trek. This is your captain speaking, Grace Pettis. I'm a big star. Trek fan. I'm also a working musician and a songwriter. I review episodes of Star Trek with other musicians and music industry professionals. We share an episode of the greatest science fiction series of all time. And they share their songs and road stories with us. New fandom is created. Our Spotify playlist, like the universe, continues to expand. Guys, guys, we're being hailed. Now don't you worry, baby. Don't you worry, What you Okay, so uh, I'm here with Slade Cleves. How's it going, Slade? Going great. Good to be with you. Uh, where are you, where are you uh, coming in from today? I'm at the home office in Wimberley, Texas. Wimberley. I love Wimberley. So a little bit about you. I always like to start these things out with a little bit of bio. And usually I just kind of like rip stuff directly from people's websites. Um, your bio is pretty short. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> grew up in Maine, lives in Texas, writes songs, makes records, travels around, tries to be good, uh, which I think is a it's a good bio, but it's it's pretty short. But thankfully, uh, you're a big enough deal that you actually have a Wikipedia page. So that was helpful. And I feel like that's kind of how you know you've made it is when other people write Wikipedia pages about you. But uh, so, yeah, I've also got this great uh, Rolling Stone quote that says, you're a master storyteller, one influenced not by the shine of pop culture, but by the dirt of real life. What a great quote that is. It is nice. Yeah. Yeah. And um, according to good old Wikipedia, you were born in D.C., actually. That's that right. right. Mm-hmm. So when did you move to Maine? Uh, my dad was in graduate school, kind of hiding out from the Vietnam War in D.C. And when he got his uh, degree, he, he became a, a clinical psychologist. And as soon as he got his degree, he moved the family back up to Maine, where he had, uh, he had uh, spent his summertime. Uh, his, gran- his father, Herb Cleves, was a executive, a business executive who's summered with the family in Maine for my dad's whole life, pretty much. So he just loved Maine, moved there as soon as he could, raised a family in a small town in Southern Maine. So I was about five years old, I guess, when I moved to Maine. Wow. Yeah. So pretty much your whole childhood. Has yeah. All, th- all through uh, high school. Yeah. High school. And when did you get to Texas? How did you? Uh, that was, uh, 30, 31 years ago. I was, uh, was 27 years old. I'd lived, I'd gone to college in Boston and Ireland. Mm. We could talk about that later if you like. Yeah. Um, you're in Ireland now, aren't you? Yeah. I was definitely going to yeah. bring that up. We have that Ireland okay. connection and, uh, yeah. it's, it's not even just Ireland, but specifically Cork, Ireland, which is cool. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I went to, so my mom has kind of been living back and forth between Ireland and the States for a lot of years. And she's permanently here now. And I'm here for a while staying with her. Um, so I'm actually here in Limerick, but I know you got your start like busking in Cork. How did you end up in Cork? Um, it was a junior year abroad program and I was basically just, uh, following a girlfriend over. Uh, Mm -hmm. She had Irish heritage and, uh, she was really sort of a, a lover of all things Irish. And I just tagged along and we kind of, we pretty much broke up on the plane over there, so oh, you know, no. <laughs> it was a really unfortunate oh, no. decision at first, a very sad first couple of weeks there. But um, it was a blessing in disguise because I had been playing a little bit of music. I played keyboards in a garage band in high school and college, mm. um, and I really wanted to play guitar and sing, you know, be the singer-songwriter type. I didn't want to lug a piano around everywhere I went. Everywhere I went. Yeah. And so I'd been learning guitar and learning songs and just working up the courage to sing and play in front of people. And I thought busking would be the perfect way to do it. When I got to Cork, I saw, you know, a very vibrant busking scene, lots of mm-hmm. singer songwriters and fiddlers and harp players. There was even an escape artist who <laughs> oh, wow. did his thing out on the street. Like a Houdini know, type of guy? Or? Yeah, that kind of thing, you know, getting out of a locked bag or something like that. Oh, man. <laughs> Awesome. can't remember his name, but I just thought, well, this is a vibrant, you know, Cork at the time, it was the, or the mid 1980s and Cork had a very vibrant downtown with lots of pedestrian streets, lots of people and lots of buskers. And I noticed that, um, people didn't generally congregate around the buskers. The buskers didn't have big crowds. People just walked by and threw their shillings in, uh, this is before the Euro, right, obviously. Right. And so I thought, well, that would be a perfect way 
to sing and play in front of people for the first time because I knew I wouldn't be good at, you know, you're never good at the first time you try something. So I didn't want to subject myself to a captive audience. So I thought playing for people walking by on the street eased my mind a little bit, let me relax. And uh, I set a date and I learned a song a day for about a month, uh, which which a 20-year-old brain can do, but a 57-year-old brain can't. Yeah. And so I was I was uh, learning uh, uh, Buddy Holly and Hank Williams and Johnny Cash and, and mm-hmm. The Clash, and I learned about the Pogues and Christy Moore over there, and just had written, just started writing my own songs too. So it just it helped me uh, build a repertoire and build up my voice and my uh, just my courage to sing in front in front of people. It was it was a good first move. Yeah, it sounds like it was really the perfect place for you to land, not just to like build up those chops, but also like if you're sad and you just broke up with your girlfriend on the plane, like, you know, Ireland is the perfect place to sing a bunch of sad songs. So exactly. I had a tiny little bed sit and, you know, no no girlfriend, no family, no friends. I didn't know a soul, no job, no car, no phone, no TV. Yeah. I just had a, I had a guitar and a suitcase full of cassettes and a Walkman in my little bed sit. So I, I just, uh, you know, wrote in my journal, the sad sex cried into my <laughs> journal kind of thing and started writing songs and, and learning songs. So yeah, it was a perfect landing spot. Like you do. That's what you yeah. do here. It's, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. Um, I lived in Cork. I know I mentioned this to you, but I'll tell everybody listening. I lived in Cork for a year when I was like 13, 14, somewhere in there. Um, basically uh, eighth grade. And um, so I was like an Irish Catholic schoolgirl for a year. What year was that? Well, it was the year that the towers fell, so it would have been oh. like 2001, right. um, and that was a very you know vivid in my memory, being like the one American kid that day, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you must crazy, you must have received a ton of sympathy from the Irish people there. I did, you know, um, and I th- I, don't, I think I've maybe have even talked about this on the podcast before, but um, it was really moving, yeah. the, like the entire country basically shut down out of, um, respect. Like they shut down everything, but churches and hospitals and, you know, they rang the bells for, for the dead. And because there's so many, um, uh, Irish, you know, descendants of, of Irish people in, uh, New York, Mm. um, you know, the phone lines out of the country were just completely jammed. Like you couldn't call anyone in the States because everybody was worried about their relatives, you know? Right. Um, so it was, it was really something, um, I experienced that on a, on a smaller scale. I was there when the, the shuttle, uh, the shuttle, um, Challenger exploded the, the first shuttle that crashed. So, uh, people were just so generous with their sympathy and so concerned. It was really moving. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That must've been such an interesting time to be there. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we kind of have that in common too. Um, yeah, yeah. I have found, uh, Irish people to be just like incredibly kind, but anyway, uh, let me see. So you were asking about how I got to Austin. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I was asking about how you've got to Austin. Cause you're, you're definitely a fixture of the Texas songwriting scene now, you know, and you, you did the Kerrville thing and you've made a lot of records in Texas. So how did that happen? Well, I, I had started a little sort of alt country band called the Moxie Men in Portland, Maine after college. Uh, me and my brother and a drummer, brother on bass and a drummer and a guitar player. And so that was the first time I fronted a band. Uh, and we just played locally. We played in Portland, Maine and in our maybe a couple of gigs down in Boston to try to break into that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I kind of realized I was kind of a, a medium-sized fish in a very small pond. Portland, <laughs> Portland's a lot like Cork. It's a very livable city. It's about 60,000 people, I think, 65,000. So, you know, a really, really great small city, but not a city to launch a career out of. And I had a girlfriend, Karen, who's now my wife. Uh, She worked in a bank Mm -hmm. uh, in the back office. So she had a decent job and helped me while I was um, struggling a bit as a uh, early in the career, but uh, we just we were ready for adventure. We were in, we were in our mid twenties. We'd spent our most of our lives in Maine, and we were tired of the long, dark, cold, wet winters, and <laughs> ready to set out into the world. And we we looked. Uh, we thought, well, we need to be in a music town, and you know, we eliminated L.A. and New York because they're just too big. We're small town people, and 
-hmm. Minneapolis was too cold and Seattle was too wet and Nashville was too commercial and Atlanta. Yeah, too Nashville. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I remember reading in Rolling Stone in the spring of 1991 about this new thing in Texas called South by Southwest. And it just, they described Austin as, uh, you know, heaven with a Texas zip code. Um, mm. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty damn good. And That's so great. <laughs> so we, we packed up everything we owned into a U-Haul trailer, which wasn't much, and drove a 1974 Dodge Dart Sport hauling our trailer down to Austin wow. in the tail end of 1991. <laughs> and got there somehow. It's impressive. We got there. We stayed with friends on the way. We stayed at church parking lots and campgrounds. We couldn't afford hotels. Uh, we knew one couple in Austin, some friends of the family, um, and we housed that for them. They were away for the holidays. So we didn't know a soul Aww. in town except for this couple who helped us get on our feet. And we just started from scratch. Karen, Karen got a job tending bar, and I started doing busking on 6th Street and uh, soon found out that where I was kind of breaking even in Maine uh, in a, as a music career, I quickly started losing money in Austin. Oh, no. A very small fish in a very big town. And uh, one of my first lines of support was I, I saw a billboard for a company called Pharmaco asking for healthy male volunteers to, oh, no. <laughs> to, to get paid to be in drug trials. So I did a lot of uh, pharmaceutical <laughs> pharmaceutical drug testing my so first few years. Are you like radioactive now? Or? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm always looking for little uh, lumps to appear somewhere. You're just <laughs> magnetic or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you guys must have liked it because you've you've been there ever since, I guess. Right. That's right. We um, we've always gone back to Maine for a few months every summer uh, to visit family, except for last year or two years ago. The pandemic year was the first year we didn't do that in 2020. But yeah, we have um, family and friends in Maine still and get out of the Texas heat and tour our way up and tour our way back. It's a good way to cover the country and uh, have some time off in Maine. Yeah, it's it's been a good pattern. Yeah, that's that's kind of ideal, you know, in terms of the weather. Um, And then you also, you know, you have a Kerrville Folk Festival um, connection too. Uh, That's one of my favorite places in the Hill Country. How did you, uh, how'd you end up at Kerrville? Uh, you know, my first few months looking back were just so lucky. So many little, little uh, fortuitous, little happenstance things, little serendipity. I was busking on Sixth Street, and two guys walked by, and they'd been drinking, and uh, so they're a little tipsy, but they kind of stopped and listened to me for a while, and, and they said, "Hey, we just opened up a brand new studio. We need someone to test it out on." We'll, we'll make a record for you for really cheap. And so oh, wow. <laughs> I was like two months in town and I got a record. Uh, I got a record made on the cheap. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, they were, they were wonderful. And, you know, in the open mic, I met Mark Viator and Susan Maxey at the Austin Outhouse open mic right around that time. Mm-hmm. And we became friends and, and Mark started playing guitar with me and he played on the record and he told me about the Kerrville Folk Festival and I sent the cassette in and bada boom, bada bing, I was a new folk winner. So my first six months five months in Austin were challenging, but I, I had just enough success to, to keep me going. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty great. You got, you really yeah. got in there, um, quickly. That's awesome. Um, yeah. and then Wimberley too. Like, I mean, have you been in Wimberley? Not this whole thing. You haven't been there that long. Have you? No, no. We lived in, in and around Austin, uh, for several years. We we're in central East Austin for 10 years. And then we've been in, uh, Wimberley for 10 years now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought I remembered you guys kind of migrating out that way around the time that I was sort of first showing up in Austin. So, and cause I was hanging out in Wimberley a lot at a Blue Rock studio. Oh, all right. Um, I don't know. You, I'm sure you know, Billy. Yep. We've done a couple of shows together there. Yeah. Yeah. Good people. Good people. Definitely. Billy and Dodie Crockett. Um, well, cool. Well, um, I only have one more question for you really before I get into all the nerdy stuff. Um, which is that I saw on Wikipedia that you go by your middle name. I noticed that you do the same thing just now. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. I was going to ask, uh, how did you start going by your middle name? What's the story there? And it is such a cool name. So where, what's the story of the name? Well, um, I used to have a story up on my website about it, but I'm changing websites this week, so it's not on there. So I'll have to tell it to you. <laughs> okay. Um, well, um, <clears throat> The legend is from my parents that uh, <laughs> they had 
when I was born in 1964, they didn't know the gender of the baby beforehand in those days. So they had a female name and a male name picked out for me. Um, but in the throes of childbirth, my mother declared that I would be named after her father who had passed away when she was just 19. And his name was Richard Slade Tincher. So I was Richard mm. Slade Cleves. And reportedly, the first thing my dad said was, I'm not having a son named Dick. <laughs> so um, I was Slade from the get-go. <clears throat> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Um, and I didn't, know my, I didn't know my name is Slade until the first day of first grade. They kept calling me Richard. I said, oh, wow. There's a mistake. My name is Slade. And they said, no, Slade, that's a nickname. I said, I know what a nickname is. It's not a nickname. I don't know how to, I know how to write Slade, but I don't know how to write Richard. It's this Richard stuff. So only the IRS knows me as Richard. Well, you know, there you go. Yeah. Um, I'm a Margaret myself, and um, mm -hmm. that's like a family name. But I've never been Margaret. I've always been Grace, and mainly just like to differentiate because there's a ton of different Margarets in my family. Right. So, but Slade is cool. Is that like, do you know what? you know, like where that comes from, you know, in terms of the language? Um, yeah, well, it was my um, my grandfather's mother's maiden name. And mm -hmm. the only place, the family immigrated, the Slades came over from England to, and they landed in Virginia and went up through Kentucky into the Midwest. Oh, cool. In, you know, in the, in the 1700s, I think. Right and the only place I've seen the name Slade is in Wales. Oh, I've cool. Seen on street corners and in uh, shop signs. So I, I think the Slades were originally from Wales. Wales. That's rad. Hmm. You know, I've, I've never really been to Wales. I've, I've been like right up to the border. I've been over like one time, just right across the border, but I haven't spent a ton of time there. And uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't either. Yeah. Well, anyway. All right. Well, I guess there's not really a good, uh, I don't really have a great segue for this, so <laughs> we'll just jump right <laughs> into it. But what's your history with, uh, with Star Trek? Did you grow up watching it or? Yeah, I did. Um, I didn't watch it. I mean, this episode came out when I was two, so I didn't watch it when, when it came out on prime time. But mm -hmm. I remember it playing uh, after school in grade school. We would watch it and uh, played it like at three or four in the afternoon. And I watched it for the adventure and the excitement and the suspense, you know, the exotic characters. Yeah. And I liked it. And I had actually, around that time, I had a friend who, in second grade, he was a big Trekkie. I mean, he was a really serious Trekkie. <laughs> and I kind of fed off that a little bit. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember the Apollo project. I, yeah. and I was really into, I remember watching parts of the moon landing and, right. and I was, I was very interested in all of that. And, uh, in, in high school, I, um, I got a telescope, I got into astronomy oh, and I started cool. watching. Yeah. And I actually went to astronomy camp uh, for a couple of weeks. I, I didn't know that was <laughs> yeah. a thing. That's, yeah. <laughs> I wish I, I don't had, think, had that as a good... I don't know if it is anymore, but, um, yeah, I was like plotting planets and making observations and, you know, plotting orbits. I mean, plot, you know, figuring out the mass of planets by their orbit. It's pretty, wow. pretty intense stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. So you're like, um, you're like one of these crewmen on the bridge, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I started, when I watched Star Trek in high school, I started noticing the sort of hidden meanings, the, uh, the subtext of uh, critique on society and history and uh, civilization and progress yeah. and all that. So I got interested in that and, and actually studied philosophy in college. So those kind of dovetailed a little bit as yeah. well. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about Star Trek is just like the social commentary and the philosophy yeah. in it. And, um, you know, it's, it's comments on human nature. Um, mm -hmm. And this episode, it just, it's one of these things, sometimes the timing of these episodes is just so interesting to me, but like, this is like one of the, the more famous kind of anti-war episodes. Um, right. And here we are like in the middle of the invasion of Ukraine. And so all of that's definitely relevant, you know, today. Yes. Um, resonated. Yeah. Yeah. We can definitely get more into that, but um, yeah. So let's, let's just go through, like, let's intro this episode for everybody listening. I mean, hopefully they've watched it by now, but you know, to sum up, the Enterprise is like traveling across this void. They're trying to get to this colony that needs supplies. There's this kind of poignant thing about it being like a desert that I think that's somebody McCoy or Kirk says, and it like goes over Spock's head per usual. Um, and then they're just like, they come across this planet, which isn't on any of their star charts, you know, and uh, 
and Spock says like it's inconceivable that it it could be there because it's not in the records, um, which we find out later is because it's it's this planet that's been created, you know, and can be moved around at will. But um, yeah, one of the first things I noticed at like the opening of this episode is that there's this blonde yeoman serving everybody coffee, which <laughs> has happened <laughs> in a couple episodes before this one. Um, it's just like a really big thing, drinking coffee on the bridge. I'm not really sure why Kirk is into that. And my th- first thought is just like, you know, they, the bridge is always like shaking around so much that like I feel like drinking hot coffee is a little bit living dangerously, you know? I don't know <laughs> what that says about him, but it's a little bit like drinking coffee in the control room when you're making a record or something. But uh, uh, right. So the yeoman, the blonde yeoman is played by uh, – Let's see, Benita Wolf is the actress's name. And she, I say actress, she did some act, acting in the uh, in the 60s. She had some roles in TV and a film or two, but mainly she was a model. She like won a bunch of local beauty contests and she was actually on the July cover of the 1967 Playboy. Hmm. But uh, yeah, so just a fun fact about her. She passed away in 2014. Um, so yeah, but I always like to kind of look up some of those background characters. There's some interesting ones in this episode. The first thing I noticed in this episode, well, the first thing I noticed was the gentle teasing between Bones and Kirk and Spock about the definition of desert, where, right. as you mentioned, you know, Spock and Spock has this dictionary definition of a barren wasteland and Bones and Kirk are talking about caravans and oases <laughs> and harems, whatever. Right. I like that. They're, they're like, like waxing poetic and he's like, the dictionary defines desert <laughs> as. Yeah. Isn't and, I, and then I noticed, vibe. and it, it, the episode ends with a similar uh, conversation. So nice little bookends to, to like see Spock yeah. getting gently chastised for his extreme logic. Yeah. But then yeah. the second thing I noticed was that um, I saw non-regular actors on the bridge right away and then mm-hmm. beaming them down. I thought, certainly these guys are going to die very quickly. Right, right. It's <laughs> always that, your, your first thought. <laughs> I, I was astonished that they, they survived the entire episode. It really was. Yeah, they had names and like yeah. actual jobs and even mm-hmm. like, you know, cultural backgrounds and they didn't right. die. I mean, it's pretty, yeah, yeah it's definitely, that, that was definitely my first thought as well. Like it's always yeah. my first thought. Um, but yeah, so a couple of the crew does disappear when they when they get up to this planet. And, uh, oh, but I should say, one thing I, I noticed was Kirk said, like, oh, there's no time to investigate this weird planet anomaly. Which, like, for the people that are kind of, like, watching this in order and following along, like, the last episode we did <laughs> was um, the Galileo 7, where basically the whole plot of that episode is that they're like delivering um, supplies to a colony, medical supplies, but they stopped to like investigate this comment. <laughs> so like, it was just interesting. I was kind of like, I wonder if that's like him learning his lesson from the last one. But anyway, yeah, so yeah, that's that's like their that's like their prime directive is to search each out new worlds, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> the title right. sequence, yeah. Right. It's like it's funny because like they are always adventuring, but then they also have these kind of like mundane jobs, like you know, where they're just like delivering cargo, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I guess you're always trying to balance those things being on a starship. Right. But yeah, so they, uh, they get a little closer and then like a couple of them disappear and Spock is in command, which is always fun. I love an episode where Spock gets to be in command. <laughs> um, who's your, who's your favorite out of like the Spock McCoy, you know, Kirk trifecta. Oh, I, don't know. I guess it's changed <laughs> over the years. Um, I think in in high school, like I said, when I was an astronomy student, I think I uh, and and in in college when I studied logic, of course, I kind of had a lot of sympathy for Spock and and uh, his championship of of logic over mm-hmm. emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I can't, my uh, <laughs> I can't tell you what a thrill it was when I saw in this episode Kirk throw his leg over that balustrade. With oh, the yeah. utmost confidence, staring straight <laughs> ahead. It was such a Kirk move. He was such a commander. And then, yeah. and then you know, Sulu hops over like a schoolboy. He hops over it and sort yeah. of exposes his backside to the camera. But, yeah. but Kirk would never do that. You know, he's just no. so confident. He, he's That's, very confident. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got to respect that. You do have to respect it. It's definitely a thing. And it's kind of interesting because I, I, I really like that in Star Trek – you know, Kirk is clearly like the hero, you know, he's like the cowboy, but like Spock is also 
a hero of the show and so is McCoy and they, they really have like different leadership styles. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it's cool because it's a show where like there's a team, you know, that saves the day. Like it's not just one person's kind of, you know, leadership style that, that ends up working. It's kind of everybody working together. And I think this episode is a great example of that. Um, cause it takes Spock, you know, being on the enterprise and kind of being logical and, you know, like he does things. So, so for example, he listens to the other opinions, you know, before he makes a decision. And when he's deciding like who to send in the landing party, like there's no ego involved. He just sends the people that make the most sense. Like he spends, mm-hmm. he sends like the geologist and, you know, or geophysical knowledge guy, I guess. Um, and, and, you know, like when McCoy or when Scotty wants to, wants to be in the landing party, Spock is like, no, we're not going to go. Cause we can't be spared. We have to stay up here. Right. So he's just like, he's great in those kind of situations. But then Kirk is also, um, really the perfect person to like, to handle Trelane because he knows how to kind of poke his buttons and, right. and sort of get a reaction out of him and get him to duel and, and sort of manipulate him that way. So they're kind of, you know, everybody on the ship has like a different job and all those jobs are important. And, um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's definitely, like you said, that the team working together to solve this problem, you know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a really tough problem. They have to figure out how to get out of this tricky situation where it seems kind of hopeless that they're up against this all powerful being, being, it seems like at first. Yeah. Right. But then the key, the key is finding out that, he's not all powerful and they, he will make mistakes and we can right. goad him into making more mistakes. And so this is pretty smart stuff. Yeah. What did you think about like Trelane's character in this episode? Well, he's the perfect character to sort of expose the the social commentary that they want, that the writers want to make the writer mm-hmm. w- wanted to make in this episode about the relationship between um, society and history and the progress that's been made um, from, from from society being a, a war-based civilization to uh, a uh, a peaceful uh, to, to the peaceful exploration of the universe. So mm-hmm. they're trying to make, and it, it's it's hard to talk about because is the writer contrasting the 1700s with the 2400s or whatever Star Trek is? What is mm-hmm. it, by the way? Is it I think it's 24? the 23rd century. 23rd. Technically, okay. I believe, um, but I always have like a note section in this podcast in, in case I say something wrong. But I'm pretty sure it's the 23rd <laughs> century. Yeah. yeah. So is the writer is the writer uh, comparing 17th century with the 22nd, 23rd, or with the 20th century where the episode, you know, reality? Uh, right. Because have we made we've made progress from the 1700s to the 20th century? Mm-hmm. But assume I guess Star Trek assumes that we'll make a lot more progress between now. In Star Trek's time, right? Right, right. Yeah, for sure. And I, I love, um, there's this reviewer, this Star Trek reviewer called, uh, it's like tour.com. And I always read them after I kind of make my own notes because I really love a lot of their insights. And one thing that they said about this episode that I thought was really spot on is that you have Trelane kind of um, differentiating between the members of the crew based on like their race or, you know, their sex or their, you know, cultural history. Like he, you know, he goose steps for like the guy with German ancestry and he like, you know, talks about Napoleon with Dassault. And, uh, and even though like humanity has like evolved to the point where everybody is just like working together, um, and equal, like Trelane, who's the, the supposedly like advanced, you know, life form is still kind of um, like that's, that's the only level that he can kind of see. He's not able to like kind of think past that, you know? Yeah. He's presented as superficial in many ways with the, right. with the stereotypes, the national stereotypes, the, um, gender stereotypes, but also superficial in that, for instance, the fire glows, right. but it doesn't, there's no heat and the the food has no taste. And, um, right. so, uh, I guess it's this it, idea it's, of like loving the idea of things, but not really understanding what they mean, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's just such a great like insight about his whole kind of personality. Like he, he's really caught up in the illusions of everything. Um, And, and it follows in the script that um, being superficial and immature is dangerous. It leads to bad outcomes, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. Um, And I I also think it's interesting because uh, he's, 
you know, he's he's very clearly kind of like a he's a godlike character, but he's not good, right? He's not like um he's not benevolent, you know? Right. And he's more of like a trickster, like he's like a, a Loki kind of a god, or like like Mars, the god of war, maybe. Like he's he's godlike, but he's not good. Um and the technical term for that is dystheism, which is like it really runs all through Star Trek in a lot of episodes. There's like Charlie X and Where No Man Has Gone Before. Um, for the people out there listening, we've we've done both of those episodes before, and they both involve like um beings that have lots of power but aren't necessarily good. Right. Um there's also like a ton of, you know, evil supercomputers and <laughs> like a lot of kind of all-powerful beings um who don't really wield that power well so it's this kind of idea that like more power doesn't necessarily equal like superiority or benevolence um and i think part of the reason that that's like a a like a common thread and is like all through the series is that roddenberry was famously an atheist you know Hmm. but i didn't know that yeah so it's definitely there's definitely like a strong kind of humanism streak yeah and and spock and Spock sums it up very nicely in this episode with, um, I object to intellect without discipline. I object to power without constructive purpose. That is just like the quote of the episode. Yeah. And yeah. I, I wrote it down too, because I was just like, this is just like one of the best Spock quotes I've ever heard, you know? Yeah. And I had completely forgotten about this particular Spock quote. Hmm. Um, but it's such a great line. Spock is just so great in this episode. And I'm really glad that you brought up that line because that was something I wanted to touch on specifically was like that moment um, when Trelane is like, are you challenging me? And Spock says, I object to you. And he says that thing Um, because Leonard Nimoy or Nimoy um, who plays Spock, um, it's actually been seven years since he passed away as of a few days ago. And um, he was Jewish Ukrainian by heritage, you know, so his, yeah, his parents were um, immigrants from a part of, you know, what is now modern-day Ukraine. Um, and that's something we've kind of touched on in some previous um, episodes. We've talked about sort of his Jewish heritage, but I thought I would sort of, like, touch on it again just because it's it's so sort of topical right now. But his, his parents were fleeing the Soviet Union, um, and his father actually walked to the Polish border, um, his mother and grandmother were smuggled out of the country later. And, um, you know, there's this sort of vibrant Jewish immigrant community in the U S from, you know, Eastern Europe that's made up of like, uh, Soviet union survivors and also like Nazi survivors, a lot of Nazi survivors. Um, so I just, you know, I got major goosebumps when, um, Nimoy like delivered that line because, you know, that thing about power without constructive purpose, I feel like that would be something that he would really understand growing up in that community. Um, and, you know, we should also mention, like, I'm not sure when people are going to be listening to this, but we're recording it um, just like right in the middle of Russia invading, you know, the free and independent nation of Ukraine. Um, and so all of a sudden there's just going to be a ton of U- of Ukrainian refugees just all over Europe and the rest of the world. I know a lot of them are coming to Ireland um, where I currently am and they're going to be, just all over Europe, probably in America too. Um, and there's also a lot of Ukrainians like staying in their country and standing up to really a disgusting abuse of power. Um, so this whole episode just really, it just, <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably, I know I'm reading a little bit, a lot into it because it is just sort of a fun, you know, TV show, but um, just kind of given that, you know, Leonard Nimoy's heritage and and that history and, um, just where we are today. It just, it felt really relevant to me. Definitely. Yeah. Also Shatner, I don't know if you know this, but William Shatner also has Ukrainian Jewish heritage. Mm. Um, yeah. So his, um, his grandparents were from an area that was then like the Russian empire, um, and is now modern day Ukraine. And they were also Jewish, um, and also immigrants. So, and actually all four of his grandparents were immigrants. So, Yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting history in Ukraine. And I think like a lot of folks that aren't from Ukraine, like I've learned a lot about Ukraine (laughs) in the past few weeks. But, um, you know, this is just like, this country has been just so um, oppressed by so many different forces and so many different kinds of bullies, you know, 
Um, mm-hmm. But in particular, in World War II, you know, 1.5 million Ukrainian Jews were killed, which was roughly wow. 60%, 60% oh, of the man. Ukrainian Jewish popula- population. So just like an wow. inconceivable loss of life. Um, yeah. And so, you know, just like listening to the rhetoric coming from Putin and Russia about, you know, this sort of like it being under the control of the Nazis, it's like, it's not just, you know, it's not just a ridiculous lie, but it's, it's really insulting to like the president of Ukraine who has like all these relatives who were killed by the Nazis, Um, you know, so, and at the time that he was sworn in as president, I, I think a lot of people don't know this. He was actually the only Jewish like leader of a country other than in Israel. Um, wow. And also they have a Jewish prime minister as well. Um, so those facts really make Ukraine pretty unique. It's not just like in the world outside of Israel, but like especially in that part of Europe, because there is genuinely a lot of anti-Semitism and right. neo-Nazism like in that part of the world. But Ukraine, you know, as an Eastern European nation has like a pretty interesting history and it's, it's complicated. It's not just one thing. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it isn't true that, that anti-Semitism doesn't exist there. It definitely does. There's a huge far right contingent there, but you know, it's definitely not run by Nazis. Um, so anyway, all of that is just, was really interesting to me. And I kind of did a little digging in it and it, it, um, inspired me to, to do a little research on that. So I'm grateful to this episode for reminding me of some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why Star Trek resonates you know, to this day. I mean, I, I did a little bit of research on um, television in the sixties and I couldn't find Star Trek in any of the top 30 Nielsen ratings for any year in the 1960s, not in the top 30. Really? Yeah. Is yeah. that true? That's it's on Wikipedia that there's Man, uh, there, I don't there's a page, there's a page for every American television season in the sixties and I couldn't find Star Trek on any of them. The top shows were lots of Westerns, Andy Griffith, mm-hmm. um, musical variety shows, Johnny Cash show, you know, good stuff. Some of yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but the, the fact that it was so unpopular when it started and mm-hmm. has lived on so long is just a, a wonderful uh, contrast to see. Yeah. You know, I think it's really just a, it's really a lesson, isn't it? In that, like, you know, sometimes you have to take these kind of creative risks and, mm. They're not understood necessarily right away if people don't have a category to put them into. Um, And this was just a show that like, it was nothing like anything that had ever been made before. Yeah, Um, think of it. We we had not even been to the moon yet when when Star Trek started airing. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, just in so many ways, it was really pioneering, you know, everything from the diversity of the cast to just like, you know, Mm. the world building that they did on this show is just insane, you know, with Mm -hmm. just a couple, you know, studio lots. Um, they really just envisioned this entire kind of futuristic galactic world, you know, it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, it's a good, um, it's a good reminder that like people don't necessarily, they might not get it right away, but that doesn't mean it isn't worth, isn't worth doing. Right. I, um, (laughs) I liked Spock's, uh, definition of fascinating was fun to see that because it's such a trademark. Yeah, Phrase. everything's fascinating with like the eye, the and, and that's how. Yeah, you know, just throughout the series, the little it, it, it's such a. I don't know if it's a meme, but I remember I wouldn't be on this podcast if I hadn't responded to a tweet of yours with one <laughs> the one true. word response. Fascinating! You instantly knew we were in the same tribe. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, no, that's true. I. I I couldn't believe you were like interested in coming on this podcast. I mean, I love doing this podcast, but I really just kind of do it for me. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of niche. So I was really excited that you were into the idea and I appreciate you reaching out. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> um, oh, we were, we were talking about the, uh, the timeline of Star Trek, just like when, you know, when is this enterprise existing? Is it like the 23rd century or when is this happening? And um, I think um, this episode kind of, messes with that a little bit in kind of a sloppy way because Kirk at one point says to Trelane that he's been watching the Earth um, that's 900 years in the past. But um, the references that like Trelane is making, this is all the nerdy stuff for the nerds listening. Um, there's Napoleon, which is 1769 to 1821. And there's Alexander Hamilton, 
which that duel was 1804. Um, and then there's a Richard Strauss um, composition, which is 1880. So if that was 900 years, you know, before, that would put the present day in like the 28th century at the earliest. But yeah, the 23rd century, and I wrote it down. So definitively, um, later episodes and films establish that this enterprise is in the 23rd century. So right. they were still just kind of working that out at this point. You know, we weren't that yeah. far along into the show. They hadn't. Yeah, it's the first season. That up. Yeah. yeah, it's the first season. I, I did appreciate that that they brought up that concept because I don't think that was a very well known concept. That when you look at a star, you're looking at light that left that star many, many centuries ago and thousands yes. of years ago. Yeah, usually. Yeah, uh, uh, pre- it is as such a, a beautiful idea, isn't it? Yeah, and as a former student of astronomy, I appreciate that they uh, they brought up that concept. Yeah, I do think, I mean, obviously, like, sort of the plot itself is a little flawed because he's like, how is he hearing things? You know, it's like if you're just right. seeing it, you know, and he's like, is playing piano parts and stuff. Right. But right. Um, so I don't think it like, I don't think it necessarily holds up in terms of, of the physics of it all. But, uh, right. but it is a great idea. And I think it is, there's something really poetic about about that thought and that you're just, you're seeing things that are, um, that have been dead for a while. There's a song on my last record that has a line about that. Um, just this idea of guiding stars, you know, like if we're being guided by things that have been dead for long before they ever even get to us as ideas, you know, um, like maybe we should like be our own kind of stars sometimes. So Mm, nice. that, That sort of idea. Yeah. So I definitely have gone there with my <laughs> nerdy songwriting, but um, about sta- about space space things. But anyway, oh, have you seen a lot of like Next Generation by any chance? I did a long time ago. I remember in, in the mid '90s when it was in syndication. Karen and I would watch it. I think it was on after dinner or something. So we watched a lot of Picard episodes. Um, nice, but I, it was. 25 years ago. So I don't remember them. <laughs> was she into him too? Or Yeah. Um, she's definitely not a Trekkie, but we definitely uh, got into the, into that crew, into that cast and the characters and relationships. And, and yeah. the only, the only thing I remember about those episodes, um, which the Squire of Gothos reminded me of is the holodeck. I wonder if the Squire of Gothos is sort of like a, a, pre, a um, like an early version of the idea of a holodeck. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before, but it's definitely like the same kind of concept of like, and they, he even explains it. It's like, it's sort of like the transporter and that you're like, you're taking matter and then you're just rearranging it into other matter, right. um, which I think is kind of the idea behind the holodeck. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. The other famous kind of precursor thing about this episode is the character Q. Do you know hmm. that character? I don't remember much about that now. He's like, he's a famous next generation character, like pretty beloved, um, by people who like that, that series. And he's just, he's kind of, he's very similar to Trelane in that he's kind of all powerful and all knowledgeable and he can be anywhere. He can do anything. He can't die. Um, but he's not necessarily <laughs> like, uh, benevolent. He's, you know, he's a little more like he's, he's at least kind of interested in humans. He takes like a, an interest in humans, but and sometimes he even seems like he might kind of care about humans a little, but he also at times is like really capricious and cruel and um, he's just unpredictable. So unlike Trelane, you know, he's, he's not like a child and he's, he's pretty intelligent and he's sort of a, a frenemy for Picard. He's kind of like this major foil for Picard's character. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's this great, he's this really interesting, great character. So if you ever get a chance to, Watch those episodes are really good. Cool. Um, and he was he was inspired by Trilene, that whole idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and as I mentioned, uh, this is a pretty fantastic anti-war episode. It was specifically intended to be a commentary on war by the writer Paul Schneider. Um, he was inspired by watching children pretending to like to be at war, you know, the way mm-hmm. that kids play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was inspired by that and, and wrote this episode. But he also wrote a really great episode called um, Balance of Terror, which we did a review on with Natalie Price, which is kind of like a World War II submarine fight episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's another kind of war episode. But yeah, this is a, 
one of the famous sort of anti-war ones. Star Trek is interesting. There's there's some episodes that are sort of pro-war and some that are anti, and they they kind of, you know, there's not like a consistent take necessarily. Um, it's more just about kind of introducing the ideas and asking the question. Um hmm. And then just like letting the viewer sort of decide for themselves. Some episodes feel like they lean a little more conservative. Some lean a little more liberal, like, but it's really just always about asking questions, which I really love about Star Trek. You can't just assume like, you know, where they're going to come down on something. Um, Yeah. I think one of the first times I recognized that subtext was in high school. I saw an episode where, um, Basically, the Cold War was presented as, as mm. uh, like a, an analog of the Cold War between mm-hmm. the U.S. and Russia that uh, was going on in the 60s and might be going mm-hmm. on now. Um, right. right. I can't remember the name of the episode or many details, but I'm guessing it introduced the, um, the concept of mutual assured destruction, I think. Oh, actually, no, actually, it was, um, I, I remember now that the, the two warring factions were like the yans and the rus or something like it was obviously no no no. that one is uh the the omega glory (laughs) Ah, wow you know your stuff (laughs) yeah (laughs) impressive the omega glory i think it's what it's called let me look that up yeah the omega glory and that one it's if you watch it again you will notice as an adult that it is um pretty racist (laughs) it's Ah. like it's very because it just sort of assumes that like all of the Asian actors play like the cons, which are kind of communist. And then like all the white blue eyed, you know, actors play, you know, the, I think it's, what what are they called? Like there's the cons and the Yangs, the Yangs. Yeah. Yeah. Like Yankees or whatever. So it's a little, you know, it's definitely, um, (laughs) it definitely doesn't really hold up. It's not, it's not the best episode, but it does, again, it does kind of raise some interesting questions. Like, um, so even though, you know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily hold up as well as this one. But um, yeah, my impression yeah. was that it sort of presented like this is if things go bad for us in our Cold War with Russia, this is what we could devolve into, basically. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it basically that episode was saying like, you know, there's like this alternative planet that's much that evolved much like the U.S. or, or much like like Earth and except that like you know, I guess China won or something, or I don't know. Um, so yeah. And it is sort of that, but then it, it ends with this kind of ridiculous, like, where he's like reading the constitution or something and it's like a sacred text or I don't know, but it's, it's, it's an interesting idea. It's not necessarily like executed as well as it definitely should have been, but, um, but it's a great idea, you know, of an alternate universe where things sort of, you know, sort of like a different take on, on history kind of like, What's that show like Man in the Um Man in the Man in the High Castle? Oh yeah. Where it's like it's a different history where where uh the Nazis won, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they like occupied America. And mm-hmm. uh so it's like there's like a, a German and Japanese occupation in America. And it's a great, it's a really cool series. I think it's based it's based on a book, I think. Um there's another thing like that on Apple TV right now for all mankind, which is it's an alternate timeline where the Russians landed on the moon first. Hmm. And I, I thought it was really, really good. But um, so Omega Glory is like it's a similar concept and it could have been done really well, but I don't think it necessarily was. Unfortunately, hmm. <laughs> it's not my favorite, my favorite yeah. episode. Um, I'm trying to find the one. There's a different one about the mutually assured destruction that I, I can't find. And I was like, is it a taste of Armageddon? But no, that's a different one. So anyway, I'll go back and put it in the notes because I can't think of it right now. But that's okay. (laughs) Um, I'm not an all-knowing being, so (laughs) sometimes I forget things. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, to sum it up, uh, you know, I think this is a pretty good episode. Is there anything else you wanted to, like, bring up that I didn't talk about? I'm trying to think if I I missed anything. One interesting thing towards the very end was when um, I think Spock was sort of recording an, uh, a, a diary entry or a, you know a report of the mission, and they were trying to figure out how to describe Trelane, and they came mm. up with God of War or Naughty Little Boy. Right. And it's, I mean, <laughs> that's a, it seems like two uh, mutually exclusive things, but uh, but he kind of is both. 
He is. Yeah. He's, uh, he's superficial. He's, uh, he's, he has temper tantrums. Um, yeah. It kind of begs the question, like, is this just normal kid behavior for their species or like, you know, is he like a budding sociopath? You know, is this like the way that right. sociopaths torture animals when they're kids, you know? Yeah, no, I, I didn't see that. I, I took it more as um, this is someone who's who's a child and has not mature, matured and has not grown up. You know, this is just a, mm-hmm. somebody who has not learned how to mm-hmm. be a, a, a an adult human, you know, has, has right. not progressed. I think that's definitely, that's the nicer take for sure. And like just this idea like that he, kind of like we said earlier, that he he likes the idea of things, but he doesn't really understand the reality of what he's talking about, you know? Right. So it's all just sort of a game. You know, in the yeah. way that kids play, you know, they play cops and robbers and they don't really understand, you know, right. what they're, what they're playing, um, which was, you know, the inspiration for the episode. So pretty sure that's the, that's the take that they're going for. Um, yeah. And, and I was one of those kids, you know, I played army yeah. with my buddies and uh, I sure. get home movies of me shooting pistols at my dad and cold in the, right. in the movie camera, you know, shooting right. each other. <laughs> yeah, I know. I definitely, we all did that. I think as kids and yeah. do you think he actually would have killed Kirk, you know, if Kirk had been there, if his parents hadn't like intervened? Ah, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, there was one. <laughs> He, he had the opportunity to once, didn't he? But he didn't. Yeah, um, he he, he, he sort of like teaches him a lesson, but then he like stops. I don't know. He's a little yeah. bit of a kid with an ant, like a magnifying glass and something. Yeah, else. you know. Yeah, what I so mean? he probably he probably would have killed him. Yeah, because he had no <laughs> compassion for a human being. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there's like when the parents finally arrive, like you're really glad that they intervene, but they also they said a few things that you're a little bit like, huh? Like you know, they they compared him to like a pet. You know, right, right, yeah. and and they said like, um, but then the dads like, they're beings, they have spirit, they're superior. So, I don't know. It was a little bit of both. It was like they kind of were were benevolent towards humans, but also kind of condescending. Um, so yeah, well, just, they're pretty powerful. They're pretty powerful. So yeah, <laughs> they're pretty powerful. So I guess that <laughs> yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I thought it was also weird, like Kirk's speech at the end, where he was like, you know, that he's just a little boy, like dipping girl's hair in inkwells right. <laughs> or like stealing <laughs> apples, tying cans. And I was like, is this, is this Star Trek or like Anne of Green Gables? <laughs> like I can't, <laughs> did they have inkwells? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I, he I grew up, that. I don't know. Yeah. It was a lot of place, I, but anyway. Um, but yeah, I think it was, I think it was a pretty good episode. All things considered. It's one of my favorites really. Um, it definitely um, presents a lot of those uh, overarching Star Trek themes that we all love. So, yeah, yeah, definitely Kirk being very Kirk and Spock being very Spock, and mm-hmm. even McCoy being McCoy. Like we got a lot of <laughs> a lot of great, and even like Sulu and Uhura got some screen time. And yeah, um, yeah, I think it's a really good one. But uh, and I especially loved the uh, the anti war sentiment especially given this week um and so that's why my song pick for this episode is uh war by the temptations just figured that that made sense perfect what is it good for absolutely nothing what did you what'd you go for uh i would for the song that i remember from i don't know 20 or 30 years ago called world a song by world party which i learned is is just carl wallinger he used to be in the water boys a song, Is It Like Today, that Eliza Gilkison does a really great version of. He introduced the, the song on a live performance uh, as a synopsis, a synopsis of Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy in four verses, which oh, is wow. pretty ambitious. <laughs> yeah, very um, much so. And it could probably, cool. um, it's a song that could probably fit quite a few Star Trek episodes because it mentions kings and empires and revolutions and also mankind's mm. ascent into the into the heavens to explore and to reach out to the face of God. So it's kind of, oh, man. it's got it all. Yeah, it's quite a, song. quite a song. Yeah. yeah dang. <laughs> um, and I always love, you know, Eliza Gilkison's one of my heroes. So definitely of course. we'll have to, we'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, and then what about uh, for one of your songs? And this one doesn't have to be a theme, you know, it could just be whatever. Oh one no, you want. I found theme. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, it's a song called If I Had a Heart on my latest record, which just came out in 2017. I'm embarrassed to say. Mm. Um, yeah. But I am working on some new stuff. So, 
There's been just a few things that have happened since then. So yeah, I think it's, it's okay. It's been, it's been an interesting time, living in interesting yeah. times. And it's but a tell song. Tell me about the song. Yeah. Um, it started as sort of thinking about um, my nieces and nephews. I don't have children, but I have nieces and nephews who are um, in their 20s now and, and I watch them grow up. And uh, just thinking about the, the world that we're leaving, behind, that, that my generation is leaving behind to the next, next generation and, and just, mm-hmm. you know, handing over a, a big pile of problems for them to solve. Um, but also there's, there's, a, there's a verse about autocrats, basically. Uh, I'll quote you the couplets, a couple of couplets. I've seen hope rise, come crashing down again, seen the bashing of brains, see the city unwind, seen the overthrow of dictators and tyrants, seen the gory mess they always leave behind. And so those lines resonate uh, this week as we watch Russia uh, invade Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, pretty perfect. Yeah. I appreciate you um, adding that one to the playlist. Um, And definitely like our hearts are, are with the people of Ukraine this week Mm -hmm. um, and everybody over there stuck in that conflict. Um, So yeah, thanks for that. Um, And I see that you're going to be back on the road this month. Is that, is that happening? Speaking of the world changing and things opening uh, up again. and Yes, it seems like whenever we have a big tour coming up is always when gasoline prices seem to spike. So it's, <laughs> everything's going according to plan perfectly. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> um, but you are on the road and that's, that is cool. You know? Yeah, we've got a, a West Coast tour from Seattle all the way down to L.A. for about a week and a half, I guess, coming up in late March, early April. Awesome. And this, um, this episode will be live on Patreon in March. Um, and it'll, it'll go out to the, like the rest of the public in April. So what have you got going on like further on in the summer? Um, well, let's look at my calendar. Um, Sorry, I probably should have asked you that. <laughs> um, well, I'm in the studio for the first time in five years, so that's exciting. So that's be, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I saw that Instagram post. Right. I was definitely going to ask you about that. Yeah, I only had a handful of songs and a bunch of ideas for a long time. And over the past couple of months, I've, I've shaped those ideas into songs that are ready to go. So I can't wait to get in there. But of course, everyone's in the studio now, so it's really hard to time, time to get time booked. So it's going to have to be a few days here and there throughout the next couple of months. But uh, we'll book where are away you, at Where it. are you recording? We're at The Zone this time in, in Dripping Springs. Cool. Do you know about Great. that place? I don't think I do. Um, but it's in Dripping Springs, which is... Right near Wimberley. Yeah, so, very convenient. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great town. I love Tripping Springs. Um, yeah. And then uh, are you are you producing that yourself or who's, who's, who's working with you? I've got Scrappy Judd on this one. He, he's produced the last two records, so this will be our third record. And according to Jimmy Iovine, I have to fire him and, and kill him when the record is over. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, well, that's very exciting. I'm, I'm happy for you. Five years is, you know, it's, it's a minute. For sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're all just ready to be back in the studio and back on the road. Um, back being productive. It feels good to be yeah. productive after just sort of wallowing and being cowering in fear for a year. You know? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm ready for that myself. So congrats on that. And where can we find you on the internet if we want to hear more about your exploits in the studio and on the road? Uh, you can just Google me and uh, hopefully the Google will take me take you to my new website. I just switched over from one platform to another, but it's uh, slade.com or sladecleaves.com. And, and uh, I, I don't do a whole lot of social media. I, I try and then I forget and weeks and weeks <laughs> go by and I, re- I respond to people when I remember. Yeah, um, but you can talk, Mac, contact me through the website. Cool. Cool. Are you on Patreon or anything? Or I haven't done that yet. How do you like that? I don't think so. Yeah. I, um, I do like it. It's, it's good. It's just a little bit of money every month, but it's consistent and it, it has helped a lot during the pandemic and it's just been kind of a nice place to sort of circle the wagons and, um, get all the, the sort of like, you know, every musician has like that sort of inner circle of like people who really, really give a about your music, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's nice to kind of have them all in one place and, and get to talk to them directly. I think, um, has been really, really rewarding for me. So yeah. Yeah. But it, it definitely is some work, you know, for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, cool. Well, um, I think that's all I have. Um, unless you've got anything else you wanna you wanna mention or direct folks to. Uh no, I think that's it. Just uh check out the new website and 
sign up for the mailing list if you're so inclined and we'll let you know what's going on. All right. Well, thank you, Slade Cleave, so much for coming on the show. I appreciate being here. I'm so glad we were able to do this, Grace. Yeah. This has been another strange new episode of Troubadours on Trek. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever listening platform you use and head on over to patreon.com slash Grace Pettis to join the crew. This is your host, Grace Pettis, giving her all she's got, beaming out. See you at the next Shore Leave. Pretty boys with plenty of charm.